The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Please remain standing in honor of God's word. Our uh, scripture reading today is uh, Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Thank you, John. You can have a seat. We are continuing our march through the Gospel of John. I have, as we, as we near the end of the Gospel of John, I hope you've had some time to reflect on just how fruitful and wonderful this study has been. I hope it has been for you. It has definitely been for me to walk through this wonderful Gospel. And so today, though, is the day. Today is the day. We see today the question is answered for us. Is Christ a liar? Is Christ lunatic? Or is he Lord? Is Christ a liar? All the things that he proclaimed, all the things that he taught, all of these wild, seemingly, understandings of the law and the prophets, were they lies? Were they false? Were they not true? Were they not life-giving? Was he a liar? Or was he a lunatic? Was he crazy? Did he actually think that he and the Father were one? Did he actually think he was going to die and be risen from the grave? Or is he, in fact, Lord? Is he who he said he is? Last week, we saw many places where John talks about in accordance with the scriptures, to fulfill the scriptures. And we're keeping it in line with that. There are plenty of Old Testament and, of course, New Testament places where, uh, these, uh, where the resurrection is referenced. The first, probably a most common one, Isaiah 53 Verse 5, 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Again, in Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. We see places like in Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over their firstborn. We see places in Hosea 6. We see places in Psalm 16. But the first reference, the first reference of our salvation, the first reference goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Immediately from the fall, we see the promise of redemption. And now we get into our text this morning of John 20. And I know I just had you guys sit down, but if you would, please stand as we read the word of the Lord this morning from John chapter 20. Starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have, la where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, just, at, just that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where he, they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, take me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, 
and that he had said these things to her. Thank you. You may be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you draw near to us this moment as we look at your word in John 20, as we read of the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Lord, tend to our minds, tend to our hearts. Let your words transform us, conform us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. Be with us all, Lord, as we hear this message. Be with me, a broken vessel, that I may preach your word accurately. Lord, we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So chapter 20 starts with seemingly this transitional piece, helping us set the plot, helping us transition from his burial to his resurrection. Now on the first day of the week. But what's not, is that something that should be just transitional? That's not something that we should just simply overlook or pass over. On the first day of the week, in, in New Testament language, refers to the Lord's Day, refers to Sunday, today. This also refers to the Sabbath, going all the way back to Exodus 20, and the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment being, keep the Sabbath, keep it holy. Isaiah 50, 58 talks about how on the Sabbath we are to keep it holy, that we are to not do the pleasures of our own heart, but do what pleases God. It is a day of rest. Other places in Scripture, in the New Testament, that speak of the first day of the week, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we gather together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. They were worshiping together all day until the clock, the clock struck midnight. And they broke bread together. They fellowshiped with one another. They partook of the Lord's Supper. Other places, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Not 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16, first two verses where Paul writes this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So that there will be no labor. There will be no work done on the Sabbath. And I think we would be remiss to just jump over this here in the beginning of John 20 and see the importance of, of the, of the resurrection happening on the first day of the week. We celebrate Christ's resurrection on the first day of the week, on Sunday, today, the Lord's Day. On Easter, what, what, do we, what do we say Easter is? Another way for saying Easter is Resurrection Sunday, which I find interesting. Imp almost implying that every other Sunday isn't Resurrection Sunday. But every 
Sunday, we come and celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. It's not just an Easter thing. It's a weekly thing. Every time we gather, we celebrate Christ's resurrection, Christ's defeat of death, his propitiation of our sins. And we may disagree, and, we have, and there, are, there are many different understandings of, of how one would hold to a Sabbath, what rest looks like. But I, I, again, I think we would be remiss to, to skip over this and not say that the Lord still does command us to hold some sort of rest, to hold some sort of Sabbath. But what we also see in verse 1, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone that had been taken away from the tomb this text, I think for all of us, and, especially, and not, just, not just women, but especially women, we can assume that Mary Magdalene was not by herself, right? As, as, we, uh, as we look at in verse 2, Mary said to John and Peter, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. We can assume that there are other women with her. We're not sure who but we can, we can safely assume that. And they're there close to the tomb. What, what did the, remember, what did the disciples do after the crucifixion? They ran. They hid. They scattered out of fear. But these women seemed not to. They seemed, in fact, to draw closer, to stay near to the tomb, to watch over and be near their Savior's body. And again, in verse, in verse 10 and 11, the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. I think we can be inspired. I think we can admire uh, Mary and, and the other women that were there. Their love, their broken, heart, their broken hearts over their Savior's death and their love for their Savior. And I think they're an inspiration for all of us, but also, but especially for for women, of, for women of God, for women of the church. But, so we read in verse 1 that she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, and immediately she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom, as it says, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, we see this also in verse 4. I, when I first read this, I, I, I was talking with Jeremy about this when I first read this a couple weeks ago. Verse 4, it says both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I read that, I was like, John, relax. It's not a competition, okay? You're fine. Uh, Great, congratulations. You're faster. You're the one who Jesus loved. Congratulations. Uh, Now, obviously, that's not who uh, it was intended, but as if if Jesus didn't love Simon Peter, didn't love any of the disciples, um, but uh, I just thought that was humorous. But, um, we see that John arrives to the tomb first as they immediately heard the news from Mary. And as they arrive, John doesn't enter the tomb. He does see the linen cloths there, not obviously on Jesus' body. But he doesn't enter the tomb. There are Probably, there are two logical reasons as to why that probably happened. One, either out of reverence, out of reverence for where his Savior had been laid. I think, I think the more, the more probable one 
knowing the fear that they had of, 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 you know, of hiding out of, after the crucifixion of scattering, that was probably more so out of caution, more so out of fear, unknown, uncertainty of what was actually inside the tomb. And at this point, they're not thinking Christ is resurrected. Even still, after verse 10, they're not thinking that Christ, oh, he is resurrected. They're thinking something has gone terribly wrong. And as Peter enters into the tomb, he sees the linen cloth. He also sees the, he also sees the, the, the cloth that was on Jesus' head and sees that it wasn't torn up, it wasn't disrespected or in any way, it wasn't dis, disdained. But rather he saw that it had been folded up in a place by itself. And something, what's, what's interesting about the face cloth is, as Calvin says, it's an imagery. He says, Christ, by laying aside the tokens of death here, the imagery of the face cloth and the linens, intended to testify that he had clothed himself with a blessed and immortal life. But they didn't see that. They did not understand what Christ had said. They didn't understand the, the Old Testament passages that we read about the resurrection. They didn't understand what Christ was talking about when he said he was going to resurrect, when he was going to rise from the grave. In Luke 13, 33, Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Mark 8, 31. They had no idea. They misunderstood. They did not know what he was talking about. So instead, they're thinking the worst here of what that Christ's body in some way has been violated, that these Roman guards, these Roman soldiers have taken away his body to do who knows what, to burn it, to, to feed it to the wolves, to do something vile to their Savior's body. And I can imagine they're thinking the worst of what has taken place. So again, looking at, verse, go, looking at verses 8 through 10, then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. For as, they, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. What did he believe? Did he believe some people think he believed that Christ at that moment had resurrected. But more likely, John, Peter, believed just simply Mary's testimony, Mary's story. Yes, his body has gone somewhere. We don't know where he has been taken. And a hint that we can get from that is verse 10, the disciples went back to their homes. I, I can't imagine, I would, I would, I would hope that if indeed it was Christ being resurrected, that they came to that belief and knowledge and understanding, they wouldn't have just gone back to their place, gone home, chilled out, laid back on the couch, turned on the TV, hung out in the air conditioning. I'm sure they wouldn't have done that. At least I would have liked to have hoped. And I like to think that I wouldn't do that and that you wouldn't do that, but perhaps we would. But I think more accurately we can, we can say here that they believed Mary's testimony and the other women's testimonies that Christ indeed has been moved. And, and the reactions, again, are staggering. And John sets it up to be a contrast. 
John sets it up to juxtapose their reaction versus the reaction of Mary and even still the other women. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, verse 11. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She's heartbroken. Her response is one of grief, is one of fear, is one of anxiety. What have they done with my Savior? What have they done with my Lord? The one who has died, where have they put his body? And then we read in verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus, where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. These two angels appear. Other places, in, uh, specifically in Matthew, only speak of one angel. In that, though, uh, we, can, we, we know that Matthew is more so trying to just convey the conversation. This conversation seemingly was done by one angel to, to Mary. And so, for whatever reason, the gospel writer Matthew must not have felt the need to say that the second uh, angel was there, had appeared into the tomb. But nevertheless, we can know that these both of these testimonies are not in contradiction with one another, that they are indeed both true. And so, these angels come approaching white, white, color white is an imagery of purity, heavenly glory. And sitting at the head and one at the feet, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. A weird question. We see questions like this all throughout Jesus, why, all throughout Jesus' ministry, right? Why do you fear? Why are you afraid? Do not be afraid, right? When the, when the angels approach, do not be afraid. I mean, come on now. Uh, these angels weren't the most, uh, we know through scripture, weren't the most uh, appealing to the eye, weren't the most comforting to the eye. We see these, it's almost as if, why are you weeping? Is almost as if uh, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tone almost here that the angels give. And it's almost as if the, the angels are trying to reprove Mary for her weeping, as if it's not necessary, but also it's not, but also in, in therefore implying joy, as there was no need to weep. They knew, perhaps even at that point, Jesus had appeared behind Mary. We're not sure. But they knew that Christ had resurrected they knew what had taken place. And so there's that twofold context to that question. But yet Mary's response is, you know, it's not just monotone. It's not just one, you know, as we just read it. I can imagine trying to catch her breath, weeping, sorrowful, un unable to speak, full of grief, full of sorrow, full of fear. And yet then Jesus appears and repeats the same question as we read in verse 13. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know 
that it was Jesus. Why did she not know that it was Jesus? She had known Jesus. She had walked with Jesus. She was a friend of Jesus. She thought he was the gardener, the one tending to the tomb. And perhaps, perhaps, you know, he was knowledgeable of where Jesus had been taken. Perhaps the gardener was the one who placed Jesus somewhere else. She does not recognize Jesus, partly, partly because of her grief, perhaps even her skepticism, perhaps even a change of appearance. We know that death, especially crucifixion being a brutal way to die, does a lot to a body. When people die, and uh, sometimes at open caskets, caskets, we do not, it's kind of hard to recognize them. They don't look how they usually do, especially after a gruesome death. They would not look the same. And so, as out of that, or perhaps even divine intervention, we see in places in Luke 24, verse 16, where the disciples are unable to recognize their Lord, their, their, their teacher, their rabbi, the one whom they followed. So, but nevertheless, Mary doesn't recognize her Savior. And yet, how does Mary come to recognize Jesus? Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. He called her by name. When perhaps you or your kids have ever have been gotten yourself lost in a grocery store or at the playground and kids are running around and, and you or your child is looking frantically around for you and they can't find you and they end up in tears. And then either you walk to them or they, they immediately they, they lock eyes with you and they run to you. And what, what do they do? They cling. They don't let go. And we can, we can see that in verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. This clinging is one for protection, one for safety. But also, again, still not understanding the resurrection. Still not seeing it. They're not, Mary here and the other women seemingly are not seeing it as the resurrection. They're not seeing that he has been resurrected. They're seeing that he's been recovered. He's back with them in the flesh. Christ has come back. He's not dead. He is here forever. I will physically be able to be with him always. She's clinging to him because of that. This idea of you left me. Where did you go? Do not leave me ever again. Let me cling by your side. I think of the hymn, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That is what Mary here is doing. She's clinging to her Savior, not wanting him to ever leave her again. But again, Christ says, do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, and I have seen the Lord, and that 
he said these things to her. The resurrection story probably is not all that foreign to you. If this is your first time here, this is your first time in the church, if this is your first time hearing this message, um, this is something that is key to us as Christians. But what does the resurrection reveal to us? we, We could take this down so many other paths, so many different ways, but how did we start? Is Christ a liar? Is Christ a lunatic? Or is he, in fact, Lord? Friends, the resurrection reveals to us that Christ is indeed Lord. He is king. He's not just Lord. He's not just king, but he's Lord of lords. He is king of kings. That Christ is, has been, and forever will be Lord. The Lord of the universe, the Lord of our world, the Lord of this nation, the Lord of this city, the Lord of this church. And you know what the beautiful thing is? is that, that same Lord calls you by name. The same Lord that was there in the beginning, that as, as Colossians 1 talks about, how all things were created through him and for him. He is, the, he is preeminent before all things. He is the firstborn of all creation. And yet he calls you by name. Not willy-nilly, intentionally, knowingly, lovingly, graciously calls you and me by name. Romans 6, turn there with me. I think Jeremy alluded to this last week. Romans 6, I think it's a helpful application for us for the, for the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we go on sinning? Grace is good. Why not more grace? To get more grace, you probably need sin more. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound by no means? Why? How can we who are dead in sin still live in it? How can we who have been been raised with Christ still be a slave to sin? Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The resurrection shows us that, that death has been defeated, sin has been defeated, and we are a slave to sin no more. But we are a slave to righteousness, not out, of a, not, out of a, not out of a fear, but out of a childlike obedience, out of a love for our Savior. Out of a love, as, 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 as John puts in, in, his, in his letter, 1 John, that we love because he first loved us so much so that while we were still sinners, he called you and me by name. 
Isn't that glorious? Isn't that, is, to, to, to think a wretched sinner like me, that he would call me by name. He knows my sin. He knows my wretchedness. He knows my desires. He knows that my desires will, he knows that I will still sin even after calling me by name. And yet he still did so. You say, Brennan, you don't know. You don't know my wretchedness. You don't know my sin. Get in line. Join the club. We are all such wretched sinners. May God be merciful to us. But thanks be to God, he has. Next chapter, Romans 7. Paul talking about his Christian life. Where he, where he wishes to do as, as he ought to do, but he cannot but what, for what he hates, he still does. Oh, what wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Praise be to God, our Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, you are a sinner. And in fact, you and I are in need of salvation. In need of one who is not a liar, in need of one who is not a lunatic, in need of one who, in fact, is Lord, who was truly God and truly man, who didn't just die, but was risen from the grave, who didn't just hang out with death, didn't engage with death, but defeated death. Not for himself, but for us too. The resurrection proves to us, friends, that Christ is not liar, he is not lunatic, but he, in fact, is our Lord and Savior. And then what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning? No. We are in Christ. Verse 7 of Romans 6. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over us. Romans 8, there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body but make you obey its, to make you obey its passions. I think of, I believe it's John Owen, or John Edwards, I always get them mixed up. But I believe it's John Owen. A great line, be killing sin, or sin will kill you. Be killing sin, or sin will kill you. Romans 8 talks about the mortification of our sins. Be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And we do so by knowing that we are set free from our sin because of the resurrection of Christ. Verse 13, do not present yourself, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. The resurrection of Christ fulfilled, friends, this covenant of works. 
back in Romans 3, we see the covenant of works instituted. Now, we live under the covenant of grace. Why? Because Christ fulfilled the covenant of works for you, for me, and yet died and is resurrected from the grave. The celebration of Christ's resurrection is not an Easter thing. It is a weekly thing. It is a daily thing. That we have been made dead to sin and alive in Christ. Going back to Isaiah 61, verse 10. We now have the imputed righteousness, this robe of righteousness, this garment of salvation, which is Christ. Death has no dominion. Sin has no dominion. Why? Because Christ is not dead. He is alive. He has resurrected from the grave. Hallelujah. Amen. As we, as we look towards communion, this is what we celebrate. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. Now as they were eating in the upper room, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Again, 29, alluding to the wonderful resurrection of our Savior. There's a wonderful sermon about five years ago, I think actually exactly five years ago, from Ligon Duncan, at a Together for the Gospel uh, conference. And I thought it was so great, I felt like I had to steal it from him. When Jesus says here in verse 26 of Matthew 26, take, eat, this is my body. You know the last time those words were said, almost verbatim? Genesis 3, verse 6. She took and she ate. What, she, what, what seems so small to Adam and Eve, in eating of the fruit, in which became the, institute, the bringing in of sin, and not just to their lives, but the, la- the lives of all of man for eternity. They had no idea the ramifications. And yet, here we see Christ in Matthew 26. Take, eat, this is my body, broken for you. This is my cup. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, take and eat what became verbs of sin and destruction became verbs of salvation. Not just because of his death, but because of the resurrection of Christ. If you believe this message, that Christ is not liar, that Christ is not lunatic, but he is indeed Lord of lords, King of kings, your Lord, your Savior, your one and only Savior, this table is for you. This is a family meal for those who profess faith in Christ. 
I thought the Heidelberg Catechism puts it well in questions 81 and 82. Who shall come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sin, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by what? By the suffering and death of Christ, by the shedding of his blood. And who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life for Christ. Hypocrites, though. And those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. If you are not a believer in Christ, in fact, even if you're in knowingly unrepentant sin, we would ask that you not partake of this meal. That you would instead look to Christ, hear this gospel message, and come to salvation. Repent of sin and have faith and faith alone that Christ is your one and only Savior. But if that is you this morning, if that is you who doesn't have faith, who is living in unrepentant sin, please come to me. Please come to Jeremy, any of us, uh, any of the elders. We would love to not uh, chastise you, mock you, ridicule you, try and break you of your sin, but embrace you with the same love, grace, and mercy that our Savior has shown us and given to us. But again, if you are indeed a follower of Christ, one who sees the resurrection and goes, that is my Savior, that is my Lord, that is King of Kings, come and eat and drink of this wonderful family meal. Because Christ, again, is not liar, he is not lunatic, and he is Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, your mercies are new every morning. Lord, while we are still sinners, you sent your son to die for us. Lord, even as believers, we still sin in this mortal body, in the flesh. Lord, forgive us. Draw us to repentance. Help us to be killing sin. Help us to not sin, Lord. When we see sin in ourselves, when we see sins in, in, in a fellow brother or sister, help us to lead them to repentance as Galatians 5 and 6 talks about in a spirit of gentleness and kindness. Lord, as we approach your table, as we eat of this wonderful meal, Help us to know why we are celebrating, not, not for our own sanctification, not for our saving, Lord, but we do this to remember, to celebrate what you have done. And we do this every week in anticipation of your son's second coming where he will make all things new and usher in fully the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, by this, renew us. And again, by this, draw us closer to yourself. And help us to see that Christ indeed is no longer on that cross, but his once for all atoning sacrifice and resurrection has indeed bought us and redeemed us and eternally secured us until we acquire possession of it in heaven. 
Lord, we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.